was around three years ago, I was talking to Bobby Harris, the CEO, and he said, you know, our meetings suck. And I was like, all right, well, tell me about them. Like, have you ever trained your management team on how to run meetings? And he said, no. I said, have you ever trained all of your employees on how to attend them and how to participate in them and how to show up at them? He said, no. And I said, well, then meetings don't suck. You suck at running meetings. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Philip Seymour Hoffman, and it is, creating something is all about problem solving. Our guest today, Cameron Harold, is one of the most gifted problem solvers in the entrepreneurial world. He's an experienced operator, entrepreneur, best-selling author, coach, keynote speaker, and someone I've worked closely with over the past few years. Cameron, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I've heard you say pretty often that your father trained you to be an entrepreneur from a young age. How did he do that? Was it legal? And then what, what made it stick? <laughs> there, there were times when I wasn't sure it was. <laughs> it's funny, my brother and I were just chatting about my dad this morning. My dad was an entrepreneur really from the get-go. I mean, he went, you know, went to university and studied dentistry and then never practiced, um, started his own business right out of the gates. His father was also a CEO. And then my mom's dad was an entrepreneur. So we really had entrepreneurship pretty deep in our veins. And my dad wanted the three kids to not so much be like him, but to really have the time that he had. He really showed us that being an entrepreneur, we controlled our time. We could do whatever we wanted when we wanted. And, um, and it wasn't about money. It was about, about having control of our time so we could really have the freedom. And then it was also the hustle. He was always the hustler, right? Of the spotting an opportunity. So as a, at a young age, he kept showing us that having a job and working for, you know, as hard as we could or as little as we could to make the same amount of money every hour was terrible, where we could hustle and find ways to make more money or put it on autopilot or have other people making money for us. And he showed us those little opportunities. So really at a very young age, I was shown to do things. And some of them were, were related to his business. Like one was, you know, selling license plate protectors door to door. Um, and he would always try to give me some new product that he had that he was trying to sell and I was out there selling it. And then I found there were people I could buy products from. I was, I was like 11 years old and I bought sunglasses from my piano teacher in bulk and I started selling sunglasses at school and I was buying them for like a dollar and selling them to kids for $3. And then I got in trouble at school for selling sunglasses. So I brought them to a gas station and they sold them for $5 and they paid me $3 and I was paying a buck. So I realized, wow, I had distribution all of a sudden. So he was always getting us to do these little business things and challenging us to do them. And some of them were like one day little businesses and some of them went on all summer long. How many siblings do you have? I've got a brother and a sister and uh, myself. I was the oldest of three. We all three of us actually run our own companies today. My brother's is like 5 million plus. My sister's is about 10 million plus and, and myself. So we've all got you know businesses and have been running forever. He also did stuff like teaching us to um, be creative and problem solve. We used to have this game that we would play where he would give us three objects and we would have to tell a story. So he'd say like, you know, guitar, fan, and a leather chair. And we'd have to stand up and tell a story 
about, you know, this guy who was in a smoky bar and he sat in a leather chair playing guitar and, and someone was taking pictures of him and, and they were selling the pictures as art. And we would just craft this story and it was all about being creative and thinking in our feet and feeling confident to speak. Um, you know, he taught us about public speaking and just all these little lessons. Have you read the book Range yet? No. Have you heard about it? Because it's no. interesting. He, he, it's one of the bestsellers now. And it's about how generalists are, are beating out specialists. And what he says is when, when there are games where the rules are really confined, like chess or certain medical things and, and just, you know, more hours and you master the rules and, and it's sort of a fixed set of things like the specialization in computers kind of do it well. But innovation seems to come from the, the more someone stays in one domain, the, the least innovative they are. And so innovative innovation seems to come from people who cross over, like kind of what your dad was making you do, like, and, and who, because who tackle nonlinear problems and can come up with solutions to them. Well, he wanted us to really be creative and he, he really taught us that there was no box, right? He also, yeah. he also fundamentally did not believe in the school system. I don't think this is a, necessarily a great lesson, but he often told us about, you know, cheating in an exam or having his football coach, who was also his professor, let him know that just because he struggled on one of the exam questions, he wouldn't mark that one. You know, we won't, we won't mark that one, Johnny. And, and so I always realized that, like, my dad didn't really care if I got A's or B's, but I also realized that no one else actually cared either. Yeah. And for me, school became more about being involved in clubs and organizations and fraternities and college, um, you know, politics and running a business. You know, I was 21 years old. I had 12 full-time employees in my company when I was, that I owned when I was 21. And I think my dad was really pushing us to be more well-rounded and also to network. I think really the only job that I really had at a young age was working at the golf club. And my dad wanted us to work there because it would allow us to be around all these other successful people. And I remember starting to meet all of these men and women that, that were successful and owned all their own companies or were in successful jobs. And I realized that my network at a very young age was very strong. And that became apparent when I started my house painting business was all of a sudden I was painting houses for all these successful people who I'd met because I was you know, working at the golf club in the pro shop. So what was your first real business? My first real business where I, you know, registered a company and had a yeah. bank account and a company name was a house painting business. It was called Cameron Herald Enterprises. And I was, yeah, you know, uh, the businesses with the name of the founder underperform. I, don't know, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I was, I was 19 years old, right? I had to go register a business. So that's what I set it up as. And then it was uh, DBA was college pro painters. I was a franchisee for college pro painters. And um, they trained me. That was really where I got my real world MBA. In fact, I was talking to the founder of College Pro over email a week ago, Greg Clark. Uh, he started the company in 1971. And I, I did that for three years in university. I ran a business and then I went on to work for the company at the head office for four years and I coached franchisees. So by the time I was 28, I'd coached 120 entrepreneurs. And then I think soon after that, right, you met Brian Scudamore, who's also recently been a guest and joined uh, his company as COO. Yeah, it was actually two companies later. So I did a, a, a private currency company that I was president of. And then I was also a partner and a co-founder for an auto body chain. Um, I was on the franchising side of that. And uh, we built that up. It's called Gerber Auto Collision in the US and Boyd Auto Body in Canada. So Brian had met me through the Entrepreneurs Organization. We were in a forum together for about four and a half years when I was running the auto body and the private currency business. 
and he saw me building these companies and he was starting to build his out and he asked me if I would coach him and uh, I started coaching this guy who worked for him, Jesse. Jesse ran VP of operations and um, after about a week, it might have even only been two days, Jesse went to Brian and said, I can't do anything that Cameron's coaching me to do. You should hire Cameron to do this because I can't do it. And so Brian asked me if I would join him full time. And I said, I would, I would work behind the scenes for a few months. And six and a half years later, I was still there as the chief operating officer. Jesse stayed for about three weeks and then he left. And we're, you know, again, friends today, but I think he recognized that I had the skills to build out a big franchise organization. And that was probably a big step for the company. So how did your experience as an entrepreneur prepare you for a COO role? Well, so a couple things. One, I built two franchise companies. So as an entrepreneur building College Pro Painters, which was you know the largest house painting company in the world, and then Boyd Auto Body, which became the largest collision repair chain in the world. Having been around that and building out multi-unit operations and franchising and franchise systems and marketing and hiring and training, I was really groomed to build those kinds of systems. And then having done it you know, College Pro was only a four-month business where we had to get 120 franchisees trained and hired and up and running. You know, I hired Kimball Musk back in 1993, trained him on how to run a business, and his cousin who built Solar City, also Peter Reeve, worked for me. You only had four months to train them, get them up and running, and do $60 million in revenue and shut it down. We became very, very good at operational excellence. So that, I think, groomed me to have a lot of the, op- the COO systems. So I think coupling that with my franchising depth is what allowed me to, to help Brian grow 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So you, you guys were on a rocket ship at that time. What, what was the size when you came in and during that, the six-year period? Yeah, so when I joined Brian, he had just done $2 million in revenue. Uh, he had 12 franchises and we had 14 employees at the head office. And when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. We had 330 franchises. We were operating in four countries. And uh, we'd gone from $2 million to $106 million in revenue. We had no debt. We gave up no equity. And we ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for. But it wasn't always easy. <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard. It was really hard. It's fast growth like that is really, really hard because, uh, you know, we had six consecutive years of 100% revenue growth that you're constantly having to, to raise the skill set of your people. I was always maniacal about culture and turning our company into a cult. Um, into a magnet for talent. I was maniacal around growing people and raising their skill set because every year they were either growing their skills or they were out of a job. You become very, very focused on people growth, people growth, people growth, and then just attracting more great people because the more great people attracts more great people. So I was always around the cult, I think was probably what I was bringing to the table. And, and with that kind of growth, what breaks more, people or processes? People. I think people break first. Processes always break. You know, I've always said that it's outcome over process. Or even though I'm a big believer in systems and the franchising systems, people break. People are fragile. Their egos are fragile. There's communication issues. There's they screw up a system or they don't use a system. But it's always the people issues. Even when I was I was working with the CEO of Sprint, I was coaching the CEO and the second in command at Sprint for about eighteen months. And Marcelo and I, Marcelo was the CEO. We're sitting in his boardroom and he looked at me and he's like, when will people stop becoming the issue? And we both <laughs> laughed. I'm like, you're the 82nd largest company in the United States. They'll never stop becoming an issue, right? They're, yeah. It's tough. Cause, and I also really love people, right? Like I really, 
if I hurt them or I'm stressing them too much or I'm stretching them too much or if they're struggling at home or in their personal lives, I empathize really, really heavily with that and I really take a lot of that on. Um, I think people's always the issue. It's tough. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and you shared a great analogy with me a few years ago, which I think is relevant because obviously there's the people and and everyone's trying to do what they can to increase the capacity of the people to grow in line with the business so that they're ready for those jobs. But there's also just businesses have tons of data these days. I'm not sure that they they know how to separate signal from noise, but they have a lot of data. But you use sort of an analogy, uh, the car dashboard analogy. Yeah. Can you share that one? Because I, you know, we talk about that one a lot. I think it's helpful in terms of figuring out when you are growing like that, like what you actually need to pay attention to. Yeah, I almost need to codify that a little bit more. I, I was teaching a CEO that the other day. So the analogy is this. Let's say that you drive a, you know, a Tesla Model S or a, a Mercedes 7 Series, right? Um, regardless of what kind of car you're in, both of them have a dashboard. Um, well, actually, the Tesla not so much anymore. But <laughs> let's say the let's say the Mercedes for a second. So, if you think about what's on your dashboard, the biggest gear on your dashboard that you look at all the time, like every minute or so, or not even every thirty seconds or twenty seconds, is the speed. Right? It's very big. It's right in front of you. You look at it all the time. Um, and then another one that you look at usually every few days or depending on how often you drive the car is the gas gauge. You just kind of get in you go, oh, I have enough gas for the next few days. I'm good. And then all of a sudden it goes on in bright orange and it goes, hey, mother, you know, you're almost out of gas. You should go fill up. So it's a small little dial. And then all the other ones that are on the dashboard, they might light up in orange if something's wrong to tell you something's wrong, but you don't really need to look at them. And then 
in the background, the car computer is tracking a lot of other data, all kinds of data. But you don't need to see that. As the driver of the car, you don't need to see it. You just need to know it's being tracked so that when you take it into the dealership, they can plug your car in and they can see if there's anything wrong or they can assess or diagnose anything that was showing up as orange on your dashboard. I think in a company, it's the same thing. At the leadership team level and even at the business area level, we're often looking at so much data being presented to us, like spreadsheet after spreadsheet with tab and, and all these links. We don't need to see all that. What we need to see is maybe two or three metrics per business area. And we need to have those metrics show up in a different color, you know, red, yellow, or, or green. Green if we're in the range we're supposed to be, yellow if something's going slightly off, or red if there's a problem, so that we know what to look at. And then let's say that marketing's three metrics were all showing up as yellow or red. You might then open up the hood and look at all 20 or 30 metrics that marketing's tracking. And you might start digging in a little bit more. So I think that's the way I look at companies tracking their KPIs or metrics is similar to how a car um, would track and report. Yeah. And the one thing you used to always push us on, and I think people look at this both ways. We can talk about the difference between having a process and, and a lot of rules. Having process and a lot of rules. So a process is, or a system that works is one that happens and almost can't progress unless the system is being followed. And it can almost happen in the absence of people. So a good example would be, you know, the reason we have police with radar detectors and speed limit signs trying to prevent cars from going too quickly is we're not using a good system. So they're trying to put all these processes in place to, or systems, you know, they're trying to, to hold people accountable to something. A really good system would be, or a process would be that, that could be automated, would be to put a, a governor in place on every car that would only allow cars to go a certain speed based on the road that they're on, like a golf cart. You know, you go into some golf courses and it goes like four miles an hour if you're in the parking yeah. lot, you get to 10 miles an hour when you're leaving, then it goes to 15 when you're out on the driving. It's like, whoa, how did it happen? Well, that's an automated system that you can't break. Yeah. I, th- I think we don't put those in place in companies enough. Well, the processes help kind of set people free, right? They're not meant to, they're meant to right. make the job easier for people not to tell them, here's what you can do, here's what you can not do. I mean, one of the first ones that I remember you had us put in place years ago and when we were worried about the recession years ago was the onboarding, client onboarding process. And um, yeah, explain how, like, how that looks for a company and what it saves them from. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I was actually talking to another client of mine who was coaching the other day about this, and he's bringing on a senior VP of, of engineering. And I said, what's your onboarding process? He goes, well, the guy knows what his job will be. We'll introduce him to people and he'll be up and running. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you need to, he needs to sit in with customer service for a couple of days. He needs to, to ride shotgun with sales for a couple of days. He needs to observe the factory floor for a couple of days. He needs to read the marketing manual. He needs to go for lunch with each of the division heads. He needs to go for coffee with a couple of people in each different business area, you want to spend a couple of weeks onboarding someone so they truly understand the full landscape before they start their job. So you know, years ago at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I remember bumping into this girl, Amy Chan, in the lunchroom. I was like, how's it going? She goes, I just want to get started. I'm like, what do you mean started? You've been here forever. Everybody knows who you are. She's like, tomorrow is my last day of training. I'm like, oh my gosh, you've been here for three weeks and you haven't even started your job yet. And she was a marketing assistant in a marketing group of nine people. Yeah. But we wouldn't let her start her job until she was truly onboarded to the point that she was already becoming kind of iconic in the company before she was able to start her job. And I think that's when people really feel 
loved and accepted and understood and and they really understand how everything fits together is because we slow down before we go fast. Interesting. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back uh, with Cam Harold. In 2004, Mike Zani and his partner started a search fund. A search fund is where you raise money with a leadership team already in place and then look for a company to buy. Well, here's what Mike learned the first time he bought a company. Bob, we were really pretty good at the strategy stuff and we were good at the financial side of things, knowing what to pay for a company. But when we finally bought the company, figuring out how to get the right people and the right roles and managing them was really hard, surprisingly hard, and we sucked at it. So Mike and his team used the predictive index to help them fix their people problems. Then when they bought and ran two more companies, they used the predictive index again. In fact, they became so enamored with the predictive index that you guessed it, they bought the company. Yeah, we bought a 60-year-old technology company. I have to pinch myself. You know, I, I get to run a company that helps people solve their people problems. Designing teams, hiring, inspiring managers. And when it comes down to it, almost all business problems come down to people problems. So if you're trying to figure out how to get more out of your people, I'd recommend you go to predictiveindex.com elevate and request a demo of their product. That's predictiveindex.com elevate. Whenever I'm doing an interview and someone asks me about the best productivity tool I use, my answer is SaneBox. I've been using SaneBox for four years and cannot manage my email without it. SaneBox artificial intelligence monitors your inbox and moves email you don't need to read right away to your Sane Later folder. All that's left in your inbox is the important stuff. You can also snooze emails and have them come back to you in your inbox at the right time. If you know how email folders work, then you know how SaneBox works. Find an email in the wrong folder, just move it. There's nothing to learn, nothing to install. SaneBox works directly with every single email server or service that's ever been created. Get a free two-week trial and a $25 credit by visiting sanebox.com slash elevate. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash elevate. And we're back with Cam Harold. So Cam, I know you're, you're a big believer in the COO role and even started a, a whole organization around that role and helping to provide the same tools to number twos that number ones have. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I love that you're one of the only rare people who call me Cam. So you clearly know my sister. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, no, yeah, your sister calls you Cammy. To be fair, so, so <laughs> I asked her if I could use that. So uh, yeah. Okay, now we're now we're in trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, I went by Cam. Well, so my name when I was born was Cameron, but I was yeah. called Cam for 27 years. And then I moved to the West Coast, and I was tired of introducing myself as Cam because people think it was Ken or Kim. So finally, I'm like, screw it, it's Cameron. Um, yeah. And then she started kind of infiltrating my business world and it's got me going as Cam again. It's funny. So the question was, what about the COO? Yeah, it's um, about the role of COO and, and why, why you started the COO Alliance. Sure. So the COO's role, I've always believed, is like a, in a traditional family where you've got a husband and wife raising kids or you've got a bit of a yin and yang, right? You've got the true kind of um, partnership where you divide and conquer. and in the COO world, the COO's job is to make the CEO iconic, to take all the stuff off the CEO's plate that they don't love doing or they suck at, to be the person who really gives them the true, kind of like emperor's new clothes truths, you know, where no one wants to tell the CEO what's really going on. The COO needs to be the one to say it to them privately. 
they're kind of like their conscience. They're the ego check. They're the, the truth sayer. And I always saw that as the COO for comp, you know, I would go to these events with Brian when I was his COO, we would go to an entrepreneur's organization event or a YPO event or, you know, some entrepreneur conference. And I never really felt like I fit in because I'd be standing there talking to all these other entrepreneurs and, you know, I'll give you an example. One would say, you know, we got to get all the right people on the bus. And everybody like, yeah, we got to better at recruiting. I'd be like, let's talk about it. And they'd be like, no, let's talk about marketing. I'm like, whoa, you just, you just brought up recruiting. We could talk about that for two hours, but they didn't want to talk about it for two hours. They wanted to just stay at the more thematic level, which was good. And then I realized like if that I didn't have my, I didn't have a zone to sit down and talk about interviewing and recruiting and closed questions and open-ended questions and reference checks and, and top grading and, and really understanding how to review resumes and what filters to use and stuff that you could, that you shouldn't spend a lot of time on systemizing and training your team on. So I wanted to start a place for the CLO. You know, I realized like I just spoke yesterday at a conference with 650 CFOs at it. It was the MIT CFO forum, 550, sorry, 550 CFOs. And there were no entrepreneurs in the room. It was all CFOs and they were in their zone geeking out on finance related <laughs> M&A, you know, stuff that like I would lose my brain, but for them it was awesome. And there's places for lawyers and there's places for marketers, but there was never a place for the COO. So we started this organization called the COO Alliance as that. And your, your COO, Matt Wool, was one of the founding members of it three and a half years ago. Um, and it was actually him and Zach from Morrison from Elite SEM were already chatting behind the scenes with each other and they were kind of the impetus for starting it. So thank you for that. It was great. Yeah, I know Matt, Matt, after Matt went to his first one, it was great because he was like, wow, there are a lot more crazy CEOs <laughs> there than you are. Uh, it became a support group for people dealing with all of their founder CEOs. Well, it became, it's a support group where we realize that all the CEOs are a little bit crazy, but they're supposed to be. Yeah. Well, that's the dichotomy. If you can firewall them, then it's really helpful. I always say like my batting average is to come up with if two out of 10 of my crazy ideas turn into something like that's a pretty good year. Well, it's funny. Like I, so I interviewed your, your CEO, Matt Wool on our second in command podcast, where I only interviewed the second in commands. And one of the things we talked about was, and I remember this was when you were going to start your Friday forward emails. I haven't, I haven't listened to this yet. I should listen. Oh, to dude, it. you got to listen to it. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. We were laughing about it. We were going, what is he thinking? He's crazy. Like who the hell cares? And like, no one's going to read these and, but let him do his thing. Right. And it was one of those, like, Matt was like, no, let him do his thing. Let him write his performance partnerships book. Like let him do his thing. Cause there's a few things that the entrepreneur feels so passionately about that doesn't really cost anybody money. doesn't cost a whole lot of time. And if you let them do their thing, Often those things, that momentum creates momentum. Yeah. And dude, were you ever right? Like, wow, have you ever created some momentum with a couple of your things? Like your books and that email um, that you write weekly have been massive for you. And I think the other times where the COO needs to say no is really hard because sometimes, you know, I remember at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Brian wanted to do his hunks of junk calendar, uh, <laughs> raise money for charity. And it was going to be awesome about like. We pushed it off for years until finally he was like, had to do his damn calendar. Well, it flopped. It was, it didn't do anything, but you know, there were other things that he really had to do, like say that we were going to be on Oprah. And I thought that was nuts, but we went for it. And sure enough, we ended up on Oprah. 
I, I, you said a key point, I think, is that the effective number two or COO, they, they, that firewall, and they judge yeah. where where it has organizational risk, where it has resource and finance risk, or where like, look, just let them do it. And I, I think that the firewall is important. The stuff that pulls in a lot of people and distracts people from their day job, like those, those are the initiatives that that's where, you know, Matt or someone in that role, I think, starts to, to stand up more. But, you know, if it's a low risk skunk work thing, again, you're going for a batting average. You know, we joke in baseball in America. I mean, 300 will get you in the hall out of fame, three out of 10. I, I think if two out of 10 of these harebrained ideas work, like they could be the things that push your business. That still means the eight are going to fail. <laughs> so, but two out of 10 might, might actually help push your business forward in the next year. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's the and the hard part for the COO is to be there as the counterbalance to protect the entrepreneur from themselves, to say what no one else wants to say, but also to give them the room to do what they're good at. Like the and that's where the real mutual respect comes in is and Matt for you is yours, where he thinks you're genius and crazy, beautifully crazy, but mostly genius. And he gives you the room to explore that. And then he takes the stuff off your plate that would distract you from that or take your time away. And then you're able to play his support where you could go behind him to talk to the team and go, yeah, Matt's being a hard ass. He's being tough, but he needs to be, you know, he's watching out for everybody. You kind of, you're protecting him internally and he's protecting you. And that's where the trust just spirals up. Yeah. I mean, I see that on the budget. So we're in a budgeting cycle now. And I always tell Matt, here's what we want to do next year, you know, from our goals. And then I say, here are the, you know, throughout the year, there's five or six things that those new ideas. And he's like, he'll be like, look, we're not going to hit the number. Um, so what do you want to do? You told me to hit the number. Like he kind of just spits everything back to me. Uh, and, and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, then let's not do that. Um, so is it a helpful balance? Yeah. Well, one of the ones that we've seen as well with this is where the CEO has got some big new project that they really have to get out the door on. And what we say to them is, that's awesome. Let's do that project. But of the seven projects that are already on our pipeline that we're working on, which one do you want to delay? Yeah. And then they go, oh, oh, I, I get it. That's a strategy we use for clients too, in terms of you know not saying no, but saying, okay, you want to do all this other stuff. Are you comfortable if all these new projects hurt the revenue of the baseline program as we shift our resources? Oh, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, so yeah, that is a helpful framework to frame it back to people in terms of what the cost is. Yeah, the cost on the people side, the cost on the, you know, which project are we going to delay side, the cost on the, you know, emotional toll. We only have three resources, people, time and money. So yeah. what's the highest ROI we can get off those? Yeah. Well, let's shift gears to another one of your passions in recent books, which is meetings. Uh, and the title of the book, Meetings Suck, would tell us how you feel uh, meetings are. And, and I mean, I used to work with a lot of these when I was more involved in our early days, these Silicon Valley high growth companies. And I would go out there and just, I felt like everyone met all day. So what, what is a good meet? What are the meetings we need? And what are the meetings we don't need? And what, what are like the rules for meetings that make them productive? Okay, so you just touched on a really important subject for me. And, and it's so I've been coaching a company for seven years now. It's called Blue Grace Logistics. They're at about 750, 800 employees now. Two years ago, they raised $255 million from Warburg Pincus. I've coached them from about 40 employees up to where they are now. And it was around three years ago, I was talking to Bobby Harris, the CEO, and he said, You know, our meetings suck. And I was like, all right, well, tell me about them. Like, have you ever trained your management team on how to run meetings? And he said, no. I said, have you ever trained all of your employees on how to attend them and how to participate in them and how to show up at them? He said, no. 
And I said, well, then meetings don't suck. You suck at running meetings. Because I've been in other companies when meetings are really good, they're really effective, they're really powerful, they're fast, they're, um, they're focused, and people get shit done. And it's kind of like how to get more shit done with less people faster. And he's like, all right, tell me more. So we started to kind of sketch out what made highly effective meetings. And that became the, the format of the book, Meetings Suck, was 30% of the book is how to run meetings, 30% is how to attend them and participate in them, and then 30% is what meetings you need to have to build a highly successful company. And people are buying hundreds of it for every employee. Like if you've got 50 employees, you're buying 50 copies. And my view on it is that the average employee, the data actually says the average employee spends one to two hours a day in meetings. And a meeting is either in person, over video, or over the phone, talking to discuss or move something forward. So if the average employee is, let's call it one hour a day, they're spending one-eighth of their day in meetings, that means they're spending one-eighth of their salary doing something they haven't been trained on. So that was the whole impetus for writing that book was to get people to stop complaining about something they've never been trained on how to do. And it's kind of like, little I said, you know, Little League Baseball, you would never send your kid off to Little League Baseball without teaching him how to hold the bat, how to catch the ball and how to throw the ball. You'd at least give your kid the basics because you wouldn't want him to come home from Little League the first night saying baseball sucks. Right. Baseball doesn't suck at all. Johnny, you suck. You're just shitty at it. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, when you were sort of coaching us around the meeting stuff years ago, one of the things that we ended up doing was we gave everyone a rate per person mm-hmm. and told them that they had to include the total cost of the meeting in the meeting itself. There's actually calculator apps that you can actually download the free app and you put in like six executives, two managers, four frontline staff, you put in the quick salary and then you press start and it calculates by the minute what the cost of that meeting is. <laughs> um, and I did that at, at Bobby's at Blue Grace Logistics. They were running a daily huddle and it ran for nine minutes. And I wanted to show people that the cost of running daily huddle for 250 business days with all of their 200 or so office employees that were coming to the daily huddle, multiplied by the cost of the entire year was, was costing them like, it was like $600,000 is what they were spending on the huddle. And I'm like, take it seriously. And people are like, holy shit, we had no idea. I'm like, yeah, that's why we have a seven minute system for a daily huddle. We don't just stand around and chat. Yeah, I mean, it makes a big difference about why you're having it, who should be involved. You, you know, when you do that, you're like, oh, maybe it can be a half hour, not 45 minutes. Or maybe it, if you can just trim time off meetings, yeah, it, it adds up. Yeah, I say book every meeting for half the time you first think about booking them for. It's kind of like yeah. a quick, get it done in less time if you need to. 
So if, you, if you're going to do it for an hour, do it for a half hour. If you're going to get together for a day, book it for half a day. You control the extraneous chatter. Uh, and then I also like finishing every meeting and every phone call five minutes early. And that way you can walk down the hall and talk to your assistant and get a cup of coffee and start the next phone call or meeting exactly on time. Well, you're a prodigious writer because your latest book out, Free PR, really goes into the whole strategy that you used at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Uh, do you want to give a quick overview of, of the book and, and what that was? So that actually goes way before 1-800-GOT-JUNK as well. I connected the other day with the first media story I ever landed was in 1986. And the Tom Hewlett just added me on LinkedIn. I was like, whoa, dude, you're the guy who covered me in 1986 for the Sudbury Star so I learned how to do free PR back at College Pro Painters. And what we understood was every day the media is looking for some story and they don't have money to go out and find it. So if you phone the journalist, if you phone the photographer and say, hey, do you have two minutes? I think I have a good story about you. They'll tend to cover you. So we used that, that system inside of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We landed 5,200 stories about our company in six years. And then when I left there, I started teaching all the CEOs and companies that I coach how to land free PR. And a company out of Boston called grasshopper.com asked me, David Hauser was the CEO. He asked me if I would write his in-house PR manual on how to do PR for Grasshopper. So I wrote a 13-page, 15-page manual, and he paid me to do it. And that became the initial chapter for Double Double, which became the, you know, the PR book was the expansion of that. That's how it started. Yeah. If I was to kind of give you some of the, the I guess, the key tips or takeaways, First thing we talk about now is called the digital trifecta. So when you land press, when you land press coverage, whether it's a, a podcast that you're on or a blog that you're written in or you know, Forbes magazine covers you online or in the print edition or a TV show that you're on, whatever the coverage you get is, that's your earned media. That's the media coverage that you earn for yourself. And that does okay. You know, People hear about you, they learn about you, they buy your books, whatever. But then when you post those links. And when we landed the 5,200 stories at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we had no social media profiles. You know, Facebook didn't exist yet. LinkedIn really didn't exist. Twitter didn't exist. So we had nowhere to amplify our PR. So now you would link the stories to your press page. Uh, you would post it on your Facebook profile, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter profile, probably four to five times over the next three months, you would share that story you would um, email it out to your entire list. So you take your owned media, all of your social platforms, and you share the story that you earned with your list. And then the third area, the digital trifecta, is paid media. So that's when you buy traffic towards that post that you've just shared. So as an example, two years ago, the publisher of Forbes magazine covered me in the physical print edition of Forbes. He wrote about the Vivid Vision concept. I posted that on my Facebook page. I posted it on my website. I emailed it to all the speakers bureaus. And then I bought traffic. I only spent like 75 bucks or something. And I got a whole bunch of CEOs in the US to see that story on my Facebook profile. Right. So that's what we, we, how we kind of amplify the earned media that you're getting. So that would be the, the kind of senior version or the more advanced version of PR. If we go back to the basic version of PR, every journalist woke up this morning and thought, what the heck am I going to write about today? And your job is to pick up the phone in the morning, sometime between nine o'clock and 11 o'clock and call them and say, Hey, do you have a couple minutes? I think I have a good story for you. And most of them will say, sure. What's the story? And then give them the rough ideas of the story and see if you can turn it into more of an angle that they can cover for you. 
And your whole system is about building an in-house competency, right? Versus most people, I think, outsource it. Yeah, it's very much an in-house competency. I don't like PR firms traditionally because I find that you're going to spend five or six thousand, seven thousand dollars a month to have a person who really is only spending a day and a half a week on your brand. Yeah. You know, the only way a PR firm can make money is to have one person work for three brands. So wouldn't it be better to pay a PR person $5,000 a month, 60 grand a year is more than any PR person makes, pay them 5,000 a month to work just for you, have them sit near you or near the CEO's office, near the marketing team, work in collaboration with marketing and sales and drive your company culture, drive your marketing and your sales focus and pitch you full time, you know, where that's all they were pitching. So yeah, I teach people how, and that's, the book, each of my books is really almost like a manual how-to. So yeah. the book Free PR is how to build an in-house PR team and how to do it. It's not the theory of PR. It teaches you how to go and do it. Awesome. So I have to imagine you got another book up your sleeve. Any, any clues to us of what the next, next one might be? I've got two. Um, <laughs> so one, not because I want to, but now I'm being pushed really hard, pulled really hard to do these two. One of them is on the emotional highs and lows of CEOs. It's why most entrepreneurs are bipolar. Bipolar disorder has been nicknamed by the medical community as the CEO disease. Um, and I've taught a lot of CEOs over the years about this roller coaster ride. I've had a couple of them say I've saved their life because they were suicidal. Now they realize they're just an entrepreneur. So I'm going to talk about how to ride that highs and lows. Actually, Tim Ferriss did a a blog post on me about 10 years ago about this, the roller coaster, yeah. the entrepreneurial roller coaster. So there's going to be a book on that. Um, and I think it's important to educate not just the CEOs, but their employees and their families of why these entrepreneurs go through the very big highs and the, and the stressful, depressing downs. And it's a hard world for them to live in by themselves. Anyway, so that's one. And then the second will be on the, the kind of two in a box model of the CEO, COO, which I believe is the, the two, a um, really tight role that needs to be played in a company more than any other C-level role. The CEO and COO have to be a real strong, strong, strong partnership. And I'm going to talk about how to um, recruit and onboard and build a relationship with and leverage that second command role inside of any organization. Awesome. You are, uh, you're averaging about one a year. So it's been an impressive <laughs> five books in 11 years. Five books, but three of them been the last like four years, right? Yeah, one was one happened by accident. I was at a Genius Network event with Joe Polish, and Hal Elrod came up and asked me if I would co-author The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs with him. So that one wasn't intentional. So yeah, I got lucky on that one. All right, last question for you, Cam, and I, and you may have alluded to this. Actually, I think we were talking a little about this before we started, but it could be singular or repeated. But what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? Wow. So the, I think the biggest, biggest personal one is not take everything so seriously. Like this is just what we do to make money and none of us are getting out of this alive and we're all going to die and it's just have some fun. Like I'm really, really, really figuring that out now. And that's why I like Matt so much and you so much. You guys laugh a lot. It's really nice. So, um, <laughs> I mean, you got to, right? It's, yeah. it's hard. Yeah. But it's hard. It's been hard for me. I've had to learn that. On the professional one, it's when you hire people, listen to them. If you're not going to listen to them, hire someone else you will listen to. So we almost lost the company, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We were running about $100 million in revenue system-wide. We had about 250 employees at the head office. 
And we were spending money that we had. We had $5 million in cash, and we spent about $800,000 on bonuses, $600,000 on a renovation, but another $600,000 on a big office move, about $2 million in taxes. And then all of a sudden, we realized we didn't have enough money to pay our payroll and to get us to spring when our payroll or when our revenues would go really high. So we went to the bank to get a loan, and the bank said, well, you don't have any money. We can't loan to you. And we're like, what do you mean? We've been making money for six years. We just spent $4 million bucks on this stuff. Why wouldn't you loan to us? They went, oh, if you'd come to us last week when you had $5 million, we would have loaned you $5 million. But now that you spent four and a half of it, we're not going to loan you any. We're like, well, that's stupid. And they're like, no, you're stupid. Um, <laughs> it was like a bunch of schoolyard kids calling each other. Well, you're dumber than I am. What had happened, though, was for six months, our VP of finance kept saying, you're spending too money too quickly. You're growing too quickly. You're spending too quickly. You're growing too quickly. And Brian and I just kept pushing forward, pushing forward, thinking we had it not understanding how the balance sheet worked, not understanding how cash flow really worked. And he had to go out and borrow $417,000 from his mom to meet payroll. And we had this very quiet, very shy, very, very smart VP of finance. But Brian and I were, I was an, I'm a 98 D in disc. Like I'm a high D high, high D. And so is Brian. And we just drove right over top of this guy who was trying to tell us to be careful. So I think the big lesson is, if you've got people in your meeting, listen to them, right? Like why invite them to a meeting if you're going to talk over top of them the whole time? So it's just really, really surrounding yourself with people who you're willing to listen to. And if you're not willing to listen to them, hire people who you are. Yeah. Don't hire people to be your checks and balances and then, and then roll over them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a lot of us can learn from that story. What's the best place for people to find out about you, your world, books, everything you do? Sure. So all five of my books, as you, as you clearly pointed out, I guess seven in a couple of years, we are on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Uh, and then the CameronHerald.com has access to everything or the COOalliance.com, but everything really is at CameronHerald.com. And then the Second Man podcast as well, which they should really give that a listen to as well. We really have covered some really great companies on the Second Command. Hi, Cameron. Thanks for sharing your story and experience with us. I think you've clearly shown our listeners why you are such a thought partner to growth companies and their leaders. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Cameron and all of his work and podcasts and everything he does on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or enjoyed other episodes, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, just select the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom to leave your review. That's all it takes. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, 
Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.